Nobody likes typhoons, tropical storms in the Western Pacific, least of all the U.S. Navy's 3rd, 5th, and 7th fleets. That's where the Joint Typhoon Warning Center comes in. Part of the Naval Meteorology and Oceanography Command, it's one of the activities we're exploring in this week's series on how the Navy keeps on top of the weather. Commander Angela Francis is commanding officer of the Joint Typhoon Warning Center, and she joins me now from Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Commander Francis, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Well, tell us what this specific mission is here. Sure, yeah. So Joint Typhoon Warning Center is a very niche role in global and regional forecasting. We provide analysis, forecasts, of course, and decision support to the whole of U.S. government and the DOD to make decisions as they plan, prepare, and protect against the threat of tropical cyclones, as you mentioned, um, in the 3rd, 5th, and 7th fleet AORs. And more broadly, we say across the Indo-Pacific region, and that includes both the Pacific and Indian Oceans. And you report up through the Weather Center of San Diego? That's correct. They have a partially global mission of providing all sorts of weather support to our fleet assets. And naturally, Joint Typhoon Warning Center has a big role in that as we help inform decision makers how a cyclone could affect fleet movement. Now, if the Weather Center is looking at the weather in half of the world that includes Hawaii and I guess all the way over to the coast of Japan and so forth, what does the Joint Typhoon Warning Center do that the Weather Center does not do? Well, we provide one element of the forecast that overall would be delivered through the Fleet Weather Center because they provide something called ship routing where they actually move ships around hazardous weather. And the element that we provide because of the expertise of our watch standards is very pointed tropical cyclone forecast. I call it a little bit of a niche, but it does require very specific tools and reconnaissance to be able to forecast a tropical cyclone or a typhoon. And a typhoon, just for those of us that are in the lay here with respect to weather, that's basically a tornado that's over water? Well, so I get that question a lot. What's the difference between a hurricane, a cyclone, and a typhoon? And the trick answer is there's no difference. So they're all called tropical cyclones, and the typhoon is actually just the specific name that we give any cyclone that's in the Western Pacific region. So think along the Philippines, Japan, and the Western Pacific island chain there, whereas a hurricane is just a more specific name that we give to a cyclone that impacts the mainland Americas. So they're all cyclones, and typhoons are what we probably are most known for because that part of the globe has a whole lot of cyclone activity, that being the Western Pacific. So there are also storms, then, that are not cyclic. They don't rotate, and those would not be considered typhoons, but just still whether you want to avoid. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, the fun thing about a typhoon or a tropical cyclone is they'll have a lot of that weather embedded in it. You'll have horrible possibilities of tornadoes and thunderstorms, severe winds, you know, and then they also uniquely bring elements of bad weather like storm surge, flash flooding, which as you can imagine is of particular interest to coastal regions and island nations that are sprinkled throughout the Pacific and Indian Oceans. And in the civilian world, one of the big holy grails for hurricanes, cyclonic prediction is the further you know in advance, the better you can warn people and so forth. What are some of the advances, whether it's in data science or information technology, that is allowing earlier and earlier predictions of where a cyclonic storm or typhoon might take place? Well, you really nailed like what we're always trying to do here, right, is just to extend that range of notification further and further out. Right now, you can actually go to like a website for uh, JTWC and see that we have a two-week outlook product. 
And what goes into that is a whole bunch of stuff. We include reconnaissance, we include analysis, and of course, long and medium range model. And those models are always proving in skill such that we can have a better idea further and further out when we think an area might be a potential cyclone. And once we really hone in to that particular area based on this analysis and forecast and reconnaissance availability, we can start actually doing things to the model to kind of manipulate it to say, we think this could be an area of interest. We call it an invest area. And that will trigger the models to actually take a harder look at something that's very unique to a cyclone in the way that they are created, that a normal model might not actually be able to pick up. And that almost feeds the model in a way where we can expect it to continue to develop appropriately an actual cyclone. And then from there, we just keep an eye on it. And then once cyclone develops, that's actually a pretty easy forecasting problem to solve. It's always knowing the areas to focus on before they really get going. And we're getting to a point now where with this two-week outlook product, we can increase the decision-making cycle by a good five to seven days further out than we used to, even as recently as two or three years ago. So it sounds like something that a human observer may not be able to help you with. For example, if someone's on the deck of a ship and they say, hmm, the wind just reversed direction and they radio that in, you probably knew that already. Certainly, that's how we hope the situation will go, right? If the first clue that we have of an inbound cyclone is from an observer, say, on the deck of a carrier, then we're not doing our job adequately to provide them the heads up that something's coming. Now, what we would call that is like an in-situ observation. You know, it's an opportunity to validate what we think is already happening. And so that is very useful information. But the goal is always to make sure that our fleet and forces are well out of the way of the system, such that hopefully they're not in a position to be giving us real-time observations. But they are useful in the sense that they can help us validate our forecasts and what we understand the models to be showing us. We are speaking with Navy Commander Angela Francis, commanding officer of the Joint Typhoon Warning Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. And let me ask you this. What sort of infrastructure, equipment, instrumentation, sensors, what do you have in terms of resources to carry out this mission? We actually tap into resources that are kind of available on a global scale. Our biggest resource, of course, is our people, but I'm going to talk about them last. Before we really get into the forecasting, we have to have good data. And the data for this particular mission mostly comes through satellites, and that's both geostationary satellites and what we call polar orbiting satellites that have unique sensors on them to give us data that helps us really be able to discern where the center of a cyclone is starting to develop because we can really pick up on wind speed and direction and kind of show us that there's a circulation. And so without that data, we're a little bit shooting in the blind, especially across this huge Pacific and Indian Ocean area of responsibility. Now, once we have that as sort of a great starting point of where to focus, we use that data to initialize our models. And of course, use of numerical weather model prediction is absolutely essential to our ability for the forecasters to then jump in and start applying their very specific expertise to build a forecast. And so that's where I'll land is, you know, I look at JTWC's center of gravity is actually our people. We have a small team of elite, what we call typhoon duty officers. And so they're specially trained with forecasting this very unique phenomenon, which is not necessarily like every other meteorological problem, right? This is very specific to something called tropical meteorology. And so to be clear, then National Weather Service, 
what uh, NOAA might be doing and other agencies like that that have all these supercomputing capabilities and sensors around the world. That's all part of your, let's say, virtual infrastructure. Absolutely. We have an excellent relationship with NOAA. Relationship, partnership, interagency, cooperation, and that is through working closely with the National Hurricane Center and the Central Pacific Hurricane Center. We share our data and our resources, and that's all connected virtually, of course. In the battle to get as much data in front of you to build a forecast, they play a very, very important role in that. And talk a little bit more about the human capital that you have How many people work in the warning center? Is it mostly military? Do you have a mix of civilians? What about contractors? Well, the answer is all the above, right? So we actually are unique. We have this title called Joint Typhoon Warning Center, which implies that we have more than just Navy personnel here. So this mission is conducted using both Navy and Air Force officers, enlisted, and civilians. And we do have a couple contractors as well. And they all play a very important role in the typhoon forecasting mission. Certainly our civilians come in with specialty training Our enlisted come in with a special forecasting qualification. And then our officers, the breadth of knowledge, some of them have specific meteorology backgrounds and others are actually just put through a really rigorous training program that we do completely in-house to teach them how to do a good typhoon forecast. And that puts them up to the same level as our civilians who have been doing these for decades and have a background in tropical meteorology. And then that relationship develops such that the more senior civilians who do this regularly, they're kind of the continuity of our mission. They become mentors to the junior officers and enlisted, and altogether they work together to make this great, accurate forecast for typhoons. And it's a small footprint. Our command on this side of the mission is only about 45 people. We have a 24-7 watch floor, even if there's no cyclone to be forecasted on. We're always monitoring areas of potential development, so it is a 24-7 process. And we have, at all times, one typhoon duty officer on the watch floor. If we get to a situation where we're actually forecasting more than two cyclones at any given time, we'll have to augment that watch, and you'll see that we'll have, at that time, two typhoon duty officers, just because it's a pretty hairy and involved process to do a complete forecast, and they have to redo it every six hours. So you can imagine, like, one person trying to do that for several storms, it starts to become unmanageable and will actually augment the team. But yeah, it's a small team here. And finally, how did you come to do this particular work for the Navy? I actually don't have a background in tropical meteorology, but I am a METOC officer, part of the cadre of officers that fall under the Naval Meteorology and Oceanography Center. So I do have specialty training in education within the realm of meteorology and oceanography. How I ended up being the commanding officer here is just through a rigorous screening process, determined that my leadership acumen is such that I would be a good fit for this location and this job. I would say that I'm here to be an advocate for all of my active duty and civilian personnel to use my tools of leadership and understanding of Big Navy to help bring resources to the team. I'm less about maybe being the smartest person in the room about a tropical forecast. So that's what I bring to them. And they have all of this science background to ensure that as a team, we're making the vision of the command and the mission accomplished every single day. And it's never too bad to be in Hawaii because it's Hawaii (laughs) and you're way away from the Pentagon. That's right. Six hours behind them, in fact. (laughs) 
Navy Commander Angela Francis is commanding officer of the Joint Typhoon Warning Center in Honolulu. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be able to talk about our mission and our people here. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, we conclude our series on naval oceanography operations when we check in with the Mine Warfare Center. Hear them all at once. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really it was Delbert Visor, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current uh, current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.